in this episode of Heterodox Americana, uh, I wanted to do a deep dive into just the very concept of identity, but I'll be the first to admit that the line between where polemic ends and rant starts and what pontification is uh, and, and what a thoughtful essay is may have been a little bit blur. Um, so I'm asking you to bear with me a little bit. Uh, I'm asking for a little bit of grace. And if there's any pushback or objections or even suggestions, be sure to let me know. But thanks for hanging in there with me. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Heterodox Americana. This is a show about thinking outside the box and examining the conventional wisdom that informs how we think and shapes how we see the world around us. The question that we're ultimately trying to get at here is, how do our unexamined ideas impact our ability to thrive as human beings? And it's our intention to unpack some of these ideas, take a fresh, heterodox perspective that hopefully leads us somewhere new. My name is Raphael Freeman, and I am one of your hosts. Today I'm actually flying solo. Uh, our, my normal co-host Angie is not uh, going to be on this episode. Uh, I really wanted to take this opportunity to deep dive, to take a deep dive on, on the topic of identity. Uh, we talked about identity a little bit in uh, podcast number five, episode five, when we did identity politics. Uh, so we try to touch on identity politics and really look at the way identity politics is changing the way our universities work and the way that you know young people relate to, to older people and... Um, and eventually how politics are working to some degree it's you know the idea of identity politics has become its own behemoth its own juggernaut uh, but we talked about identity politics and the problems that come with that without really talking about what identity is and for me you know not just in terms of what it means to define terms it's actually one of these things that I think is really important to dig down into because there's so many implications, there's so many ideas that people have. We feel like we're all on the same page. We feel like we're all talking about the same thing. Uh, but I'm going to venture to argue that uh, most people don't really have uh, a sense of identity where they've taken the time to understand what's actually going on. I think it's way more complex, way more intricate, and way more problematic than, than most people assume. And I, I just really want to take a deep dive into you know, what identity is. Uh, off the bat, I, I think it's fair to say that, you know, everyone comes with multiple identities. So before we even define it, let's just acknowledge that identity is not one thing. Uh, whether it's your gender or race or religion, nationality, ethnicity, your sexual orientation, what sports team you like, uh, whatever it is, right? We we all have multiple identities that we're constantly engaging and constantly uh, navigating all at a time. Uh, sometimes, you know, when the Cowboys are playing, the Eagles fans really feel their 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 Eagles identity. And other times, when uh, people are talking about trade with China, maybe their American identity. Or God forbid, when we're talking about the Olympics, right? Everyone feels American during the Olympics. Um, everyone in the United States. That's completely ridiculous what I just said. Uh, every, you know, during the time of the Olympics, people feel a really strong um, sense of their national identity, uh, irrespective of, of where it is that they live. Um, but we're all constantly engaging in multiple identities and navigating multiple identities at the same time. That part, I think we all understand fairly well. But I think a lot of people also assume that your identity also has some permanence to it, that there is a permanent feature that is intrinsic to who you are, it makes up who you are, and it can't be undone and it can't be taken out of you. That is, your blackness is your blackness, your whiteness is your whiteness, your gayness is your gayness, your straightness is your straightness. These are, I think we perceive these parts of our identity as being intrinsic and permanent and, and immutable. But is that true? Is it true that identity has these these aspects or these features that are permanent and immutable and fixed and intrinsic? Or 
is it just a, you know really a feature of, of how we think about ourselves with regard or with respect to you know this other thing that gets defined on the other side let's say let's call it the other um, are, are there real parts of our identity that are fixed or is it really just a, a, a shell game I'm gonna argue that it's the latter that there's nothing fixed about it there's nothing permanent uh, there's nothing intrinsic about it uh, but it does have a very specific purpose uh, it does serve I, I think not just in terms of human psychology I think identity goes way deeper like down to the cellular level of how identity works which is why I think it has a purpose and we'll talk about that but I think that it's way more complicated than most people ever really slow down to really tease apart and think about and I, I think that it's important and I'd like to try to loop back around to identity politics, which really involves us looking at group identity. Uh, but before we do that, we have to dive headlong into what is identity. Uh, and I, I, I'm, I'm arguing that I think it's, it's way more complicated than most people think. But in order to, to understand group identity, uh, first we're going to look at what is identity and what is a group as it relates to identity. I also want to look at the aspects that I think so many people get wrong, uh, and, and there's so much that's out there, not just from like the deconstructionists, but there's some positivist stuff, and there's some political stuff, and you know, no one's talking to each other, there's not enough synthesis, um, so I want to look at some of the aspects that, that I, I don't think get fully explored in everyday conversations about identity, um, and, and why that's important. And I'd like to look at how to move forward. Um, so let's start with a definition, um, my definition, or, or something very rudimentary. But you know, what is identity? Identi identity to me, it's a it's a rudimentary form uh, of making a distinction between self and the other. I, I hope you don't think that I'm cheating by using the, the term self in order to define identity because they're they're so closely linked. Uh, but I, I feel like I need to start with the idea of self and even take a deep dive in that. Uh, to say that the bare minimum about the self, the bare minimum, is, is to say that the self is the center of attention. It's the, the reference point. It's the reference that you need in order to make any sense out of anything. Uh, and one of the simplest selves, uh, or simplest like self-referential reference point, uh, not the simplest, but one of them is like a single-celled organism. And I think a single-celled organism is a perfect way to think about how identity works. Mainly because, you know, of all the things that single-celled organisms are trying to do, uh, in so many ways they're trying to do exactly what all life is trying to do uh, in terms of keeping entropy at bay and keeping its own momentum going. Um, but one of these fundamental things that a single-celled organism is trying to do is is keep the outside out and the inside in. Um, and it does this by means of a cell wall. The cell wall has some, some semi-permeability that allows some things to come out and some things to come in. Uh, but it also keeps it in, in an equilibrium, right? The cytoplasm has a particular equilibrium with the aqueous environment that it finds itself in, whatever water or whatever fluid that a single-cell organism might find itself in. It has to decide how much to let in, how much to let out. And in a very real way, that means that there's a sense of self there. I mean, if it weren't a sense of self in a single-celled organism, it would just spread all over the place. It might just open and crack open and just leak out. But it doesn't leak out. Uh, and it doesn't just you know, it continue to expand until it explodes either. There's a sense of how much to keep in, how much to keep out. There's a sense of... This is me. I mean, obviously, single-celled organisms don't have these thoughts, but there's a real sense of um, of the difference between the outside world and the inside world. And even when single-celled organisms, when they um, when they divide, there's still a sense of self that goes on to the sister cell or to the to the daughter cell. Um, there's a real sense that. Um, you know, I, I'm like this other thing that I came from, 
but I'm also different than the outside world. I'm different than the outside environment. And I would argue that the, at the very base of what it means to be alive, that is to say at the cellular level, at the level of one single cell, it's identity. It's this distinction between the self and the other, between the self and the outside world. It's that distinction that really allows the cell to exist. It allows multicellular organisms to exist. It's what allows life to really exist. So even though, you know, identity gets really complex by the time you're talking about, you know, group identities or sexual identities, the very notion of identity is built into the building blocks of life. And it has to be that way. Now, there's a level of complexity that you find even in a single cell as well. Right? There are all types of organelles and different you know, organelles that have different functions. And in some ways, I think identity works that way as well. Uh, and, and we'll come back to that. Actually, let's talk about that now. If you think about, let's take the nucleus of a cell, right? It's where, it's how you know what the thing really is. Yeah, genetic material, yada, yada. But, but really, it's like, I keep... I keep the information. I keep, this is the heart of the cell information, right? That's the nucleus. And then you have all these organelles that do different things. And and for identity really to work both at the self level as well as definitely at the group level, I think it's, it's a useful metaphor to think of identity as a cell, right? You, you have a, a sense of, yourself and, and the outside of you at the individual level you have a sense of where you end uh your cell wall it's your skin um and there's a part of the brain that you know it regulates your, your sense of where you stop where you end um and then you have all of these organelles you know so in a, in a creature our size we just call them organs um but they all have different functions and they all help to participate in 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 the the defining of the self uh, in, in a very real way, I think this analog, I think you could tie it to a bigger sense of identity, group identity as well, where you have a very core, right? You have a heart of the thing that reproduces what you might consider the, the, the sense of identity. Uh, and you'll have all these organelles as well, right? You know, where, what art does and what music does and what food does and, you know, all the values uh, those are reproduced and sort of held on to by different functions within the larger group. That is to say, if you were to think about Mongolian musicians, right? Like Mongolian musicians who contribute to Mongolian identity, they don't do the same things as the Mongolian cooks, right? The Mongolian cooks are there. They're like the keepers of, like, this is pure Mongolian food. You're eating, you know, Kazakh food or something like that. Um, but you have these these organelles, even within a, a group identity, that have different functions to all together, you know, the musicians and the artists and the, the, the elders who hold the values, they all act as organelles to together with that core, uh, pass on that identity from cell to cell to cell, or let's say like into future generation to future generation, and so on and so forth. Um, and, you know, they interact and they intermix to help define the cell identity or, you know, the larger group identity. But, I, you know, I think this metaphor is almost exactly what, what happens uh, when we get to the larger scale. So stick with me here. I, mean, I know this, this, it's getting a little crazy, um, you know, with, with this metaphor. But the, the, the other thing that the organelles do or the other thing that the structures inside of an identity do is they're responsible for policing the things that are not part of the identity, that are not part of the structures of... uh, So in a real organism, you would have things that, let's say, they jettison waste or they jettison foreign bodies. Uh, But inside of a culture or inside of an identity, um, things get policed in a different kind of way. So let's say there's no such thing as pork shawarma, right? Um, Because the shawarma-eating people of the world don't eat pork, and if you try to make a pork shawarma, uh, it would get policed. The idea of shawarma certainly lends itself to, to pork uh, because that, that's what, uh, you know, the Mexicans have a dish called uh, tacos al, al pastor, which is essentially pork shawarma with, like, you know, some pineapples made it in there somehow. Uh, but they would never call it shawarma, and the shawarma people 
um, they 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 don't have pork. It's policed. That that's what I'm getting at. Uh, the same way people police pineapple on pizza, because everyone in the world knows that pineapple doesn't belong on, on pizza. I digress. Um, <laughs> let's talk about another single-celled organism uh, that works both as a single-celled organism and, and a colony. And this is what I, I call a suicide bomber bacteria. Um, they, they have lots of uh, bacteria that work this way. But if you take a, a single bacterium, what it's going to do is the same thing that any other single cell organism is going to do. It's maintaining identity in a particular kind of way. But what's interesting about the, the bacteria that compete and fight and sometimes have wars is when, when you have bacteria that belong in a colony and then they get encroached upon by competing bacteria, in some cases what you'll have is a few of the bacteria will build up enough internal toxins, uh, toxins that have proteins that will shield all of their co-colonials, all of their their brethren, right? It, it'll shield all of their tribe from from this uh, from this toxin, but it'll kill all of the competing. It'll com kill all the uh, competing bacterial uh, colonies. So this is interesting. Uh, the, the bacterium itself will eventually explode, right? Uh, and a few might do this. They explode and all the toxins come out and their tribe is fine. And the encroaching or the, the interloping bacteria, they all die off. Now, the reason this is interesting from an identity standpoint is, again, I, I don't want to assign any kind of mental faculties to bacteria because we understand that's not what's happening and it's all proteins and all this other kind of stuff. Um, but there is a sense of, you know, those bacteria that decide, I can't get away from this language, those bacteria decide that decide that they are going to explode themselves by building up toxin and protect their brethren they have to have a sense of who's in and who's out. Uh, this is done at the protein level, but, but there is a sense of who is in, who's out, who gets protected, who gets killed. It, it's an identity. It's a rudimentary identity that doesn't work nearly as sophisticated as our own, but it is, at, at the very core of it, an identity. So we have single-cell organisms that have to decide um, you know, what is in and what is out, what is literally on one side of the cell wall versus the other side of the cell wall. And, and even in single cell organisms, sometimes when they're in colonies, they fight like, like they're in armies, right? And some of them kill, they, they sacrifice their own lives to save the lives of their compatriots, um, which is a, is a wild thing that bacteria do that. But at, at the core of that is a sense of self. And and the other, you know, this rudimentary sense of the, the reference point, the other bacteria are clearly the other, like the the enemy. They they are the the ones that that get destroyed. And I think that that is fascinating, but it also tells us so much about how fundamental the idea of identity is to life itself. So, why talk about cell walls? Uh, the reason to talk about cell walls at all is because I, I think that so much of how we think about identity has a part that's missing, and that's the cell wall. You know, if the self-other distinction is important, and I think that it is, I think it's critical, I think it is one of the driving things that allows life to be life, um, then it has to have boundaries. It has to have a cell wall. It has to have something that says this is the point of distinction between the reference point, the self, and that thing which is not the reference point, the other. Uh, it's not enough to just define yourself this way. There needs to be a barrier between the self and the other. And even, and even that, right, that speaks to the complexity of what it means to have you know, a society that is multiracial and multi-ethnic, it's like it's way more difficult, I think, than, than people realize uh, to run and to have a society that works that way. There haven't been that many in history. There have been some. Uh, but, but having a multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multi-language society, uh, it's actually kind of a, it, it's a bear to try to get everyone on the same identity level. 
because there's there's so many ways that people conceptualize uh, the self and the other. So I, I find myself back to this question, this time not just looking at the, the cellular level and not in a rudimentary sense, but what is identity? Uh, identity, it, it, it's a little hard to define. Uh, I can say for sure what it's not. It's not skin color, right? It's not skin color or hair or any other set of features. And we know this because we can test for all those features and that still is not enough to, to build identity. It's, it's not language. You know, language is one of these things that people really... So there's a body of positivist, uh, you know, political work where people start looking at how, how identity gets built in different uh, language groups and religious groups. And language is not the driver. For so many people feel like, oh, you know, I feel Greek because, you know, because I speak Greek. Uh, but so many Greeks, especially during the, the time of the Ottoman Empire, they spoke Ottoman Turkish. They still had a Greek identity, but they didn't speak Greek. Um, and, you know, Greek was also the language of the Eastern Roman Empire. And those people had a Roman identity. They thought of themselves as Roman, even though Greek was the lingua, the lingua franca of, of, Byzantine, of Byzantium. Um, and, and they didn't think of themselves as Greek. So you, you have two populations. One is Greek, thinks of itself as Greek that speaks Ottoman Turkish. Uh, uh, the other one thinks of itself as Roman and speaks Greek. And language is, in and of itself, it's not enough to define how identity works. Uh, there's also an interesting problem about the Phoenicians. Uh, so most of us understand that the Phoenicians died long time ago, but there's a group of people in Lebanon, almost all of them are Christian, all of them are Christian, uh, who think of themselves as Phoenicians. Um, and if you ever want, like, a, a, a just to have your brain ooze out of your ears, you can look at Phoenicianism uh, as a sort of uh, ideological and, 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 uh, and identity movement. But with these people who self-identify as Phoenicians, they think of themselves as, you know, just being the descendants of the Phoenicians. They think of themselves as Phoenicians, even though they speak Arabic. Um, they say that the language that they, they are speaking is not Arabic. It's actually a version of Phoenician, um, and they don't think of themselves as Arabs. Uh, and even though they're genetically completely like the people who are Muslim... Primarily, it's one of these things that, that forms to separate um, how, how some Christian identities work uh, in Lebanon and how the Muslim identities work. So, you know, call me a cynic, and those people out there who think of themselves as Phoenician, they're just going to have to deal with, uh, you know, my opinion on this. But it's essentially a way of not being Arab. Right? These are people who don't want to be associated with Islam. They don't want to be thought of as Arabs. I mean, they're eating hummus. They're eating falafel. It's, the, and it's all the same food, right? They're speaking Arabic. They're eating Arabic food. They're participating in Arab culture. They are Arabs. Uh, but I think that the idea of being an Arab is so cognitively dissonant for them um, as Christians in, in Lebanon that they take on this Phoenician identity. Um, and and it's, it's just odd how, how people start to so so language again so Arab it, Arabic is not enough to to define the identity uh, for these people uh, and it's you know again it's not the food that you eat right you know if you take the people of Lebanon again and Jordan and Syria and Palestine uh, and, and to a lesser degree you know the Greeks eat falafel and hummus and dolma and, and all these other types of things uh, the food is all the same and. and you know, roughly the same in those places. The dialects are roughly the same. Their culture is, is super similar. But the Jordanians and Syrians and Lebanese and Palestinians don't think of themselves as a, as a continuum. They, they all have separate identities. So language is not enough. Culture is not enough. Um, you know, ethnicity is just as bad. That, that's a, that's a, a bag of uh, confusion that I don't really want to tackle. Ethnicity, that's a whole other show. Um, but the question is at the bottom of this: What is what is identity uh, really? And so we're clear on what it's not. It, it's not in and of itself religion or language or food or culture or skin or any feature. It, it's a moving thing that is complex, and I, I think that the metaphor of the cell with all of these organelles and a nucleus 
and uh, cytoplasm, I think that's the best way to think about how a group identity uh, would work or a larger identity because there are enough moving pieces that you just can't define it in, you know, in terms of one thing like language. There are multiple things, language and food and music, all these things interacting and intermixing with each other to help define uh, what I think is a, is a larger identity, a, a group identity. So if, if that's identity, then it's, I guess it also makes sense to think about what is a group? What is a group? Unfortunately, defining what a group is in terms of group identity uh, is no easier than defining identity. It's maybe even more elusive than identity. Um, in this particular political moment in the United States and in a few other countries, uh, black identity and blackness is sort of at the center of this moment. Uh, and, you know, what is black? I think for so many people that seems easy enough. I think people have a very clear idea in their head of what is black. And that's probably because they never interrogate the idea. Um, but it's not at all easy to say what it is. Right? Like, is, is black based on how you look? Uh, yeah, I guess so. So there's a story where Mindy Kaling's brother, um, I forget the guy's name, DJ maybe, uh, Mindy Kaling's brother is trying to get into med school and he is, um, you know, he's a middling ap application uh, type. Uh, he, he's fine. He's middle of the road. No one really cares. He applies as an Indian uh, American guy. And, you know, his, his version of the story is, is that he doesn't get in. And then he says, you know, uh, that he he, plot, he shaves his head and is taken as black. People perceive him as black. And he applies to medical school as a black man and he gets in. Um, th that's the story that he tells. I mean, you look a little bit deeper and it seems like he applied to 22 schools and he got into one. But even as a black guy. Uh, and so it, it doesn't really seems like it's nearly as salacious as he made it out to be. But the point is that um, for some group of people, they took Mindy Kaling's brother as black, right, based on how he looked. Is is the look, uh, is, is what blackness is, is it based on how you look? Um, is Mindy Kaling's brother VJ? Um, is, is he black? Is Mindy Kaling black? Um, and, you know, some people would say no, but if that's the case, then, then phenotype is not enough to define what it is. And then it can't really be based on ancestry either, right? And, you know, everyone has African ancestry, but even if you make this, this argument for recent African ancestry, um, you know, there are loads of people who, who have Indian heritage and come direct, you know, you know, they grew up in Africa, they were born in Africa, their grandparents were born in Africa. Uh, they have recent African ancestry. Um, that is not necessarily enough, I think, in some people's mind to, to make them black or even themselves to, to identify that way. Um, and, and so it's not that simple. And I think however it is that you define the thing, uh, whether it's black or white or whatever it is, you know, Asian, Jesus Christ is Asian, right? Uh, if you start interrogating, the, the answer is yes, Jesus Christ is Asian. If you start interrogating the edges, you'll find that whatever it is that we think about a particular, you know, group identity, it starts to fray at the edges. Um, in this moment, I think whites are at the other pole of this moment, right? So, yes, there are other identities. Uh, there's Hispanic identity, which is confusing enough, and maybe we'll talk about that. That might be a whole other show. Uh, the Jewish identity. There are loads of other identities that are that are happening. Uh, in the United States, uh, but for this particular political moment that we find um, ourselves in, uh, black and white are, are at the, the two poles. And, and we'll talk about some of that uh, later. But e even when you look at whiteness and how far, how hard it has been um, to define historically, I think there are loads of people who think, I, I know white when I see it, uh, but the courts hadn't always felt that way. Uh, there, there was a Japanese, um, there was a Japanese national. He was born in Japan. Uh, this guy was named uh, Takao Ozawa. Um, Ozawa. 
who was um, he was trying to, to naturalize and become a United States citizen. And uh, there were limits on who could become naturalized at the time. Um, and whites and essentially, you know, whites and blacks were the only people who were able to, to naturalize as citizens uh, at that moment. And, you know, uh, Takao Ozawa just made the argument. He's like, well, I, that's easy. I'm white. So case closed. Make me a citizen. And, um, you know, being Japanese, however, however we can think of Japanese as, as not being white, he was like, well, you know, I, I see what the, the lay of the land is. You got white people, you got black people. I'm clearly one of the white people. The end. It's simple. To our eyes, it may not seem simple. Uh, but I think in his head, it was simple. And as the courts tried to go about defining what was what, uh, they didn't have a, a clear logic. I mean, they essentially leaned on the logic of, well, doesn't look white to me. I think if you ask anybody, I mean, it's not quite the language. It's basically the decisions. It's anybody knows a white person when they see one. You, my friend, are not that. You are Japanese. That's different than white. It's Asian. The end. That That's sort of how the court landed on it. It was 1922. Um, and then... Three years later, you have the exact same problem. Uh, there's an Armenian guy, Cartosian, uh, who was also Asian, right? Armenia is in Asia, and so you have another Asian guy who has the same problem. He's darker than, you know, a German or whatever. Uh, he's swarthier, and he, he also wants to be white, uh, not necessarily for reasons of naturalization, but... You know, the system here sucked in the United States. You had color fountains and white fountains. And, you know, Cartosian was like, well, I, I want to be on the good side. Who, who doesn't want to be on the good side when you think about it? No one wants the colored side. Um, and Cartosian made the same argument. He was like, well, I'm white. And it wasn't that simple because they were like, you, you look colored to me. Again, this goes to the Supreme Court. I don't know if I said that uh, Oz Ozawa went to the Supreme Court, but this is another... Supreme Court case, three years later, Cartosian is actually the case that breaks it open and forces the Supreme Court to define what whiteness is. For the first time in U.S. history, we have a definition, and we have a definition by the courts. Now, by the time you look it up now, there are different institutions in the United States that have different definitions. The court has that one. Immigration has another one. Um, naturalization, you know, that whole process has another one. Um, but before Cartosian, people were lazy about how they were defining white. And what Cartosian did is, and the court bends over, the court bends over backwards, really, to let this guy in. I mean, they really, they start digging into the history of, like, the Armenian empires and what was happening in the 6th century. I mean, they really, you know, the guy looked white enough that they had to dig in the annals of history to make some kind of justification for Cartosian, but then we have at least some standard, some definition that the courts could use to say who is white, who's not, who's entitled to what benefits, who's not. Um, but but it's really interesting. Um, it's interesting in the sense that even though we all think that we know what white is, one, it's not that simple. It hasn't been that simple. And if you dial back the clock even further, you know all the things that we assume about what white is. It all falls apart. You know, at one point, the, the French and the English, who are separated by the English Channel, I mean, people swim the English Channel, thought of themselves as two different races, uh, unable to be ruled by the same king because they had different sensibilities because they were different races of people. Uh, the Germans and the Greeks had nothing in common and thought of themselves as two different races of people. Um, now we all think of them as, as white because we're in this paradigm but I, I want you to be able to see the paradigm, right? The paradigm in and of itself is something that we've learned and it's not natural and hasn't always been there. Um, and as late as 1925, um, you know, the Armenians would have been on, you know, the other side. And this is a similar, you know, thing that happens with the Jews who move from being, you know, the Jews were called Mongoloids and they were called Asiatics and they were called Slavonics and they were called Semites and Eventually, there's a woman named Karen Brodnick. She she writes a book called uh, How the Jews Became White. But, you know, this journey to whiteness, um, 
you know, more than the journey itself, it tells us just how not concrete, how insecure the, the, the idea of whiteness is in and of itself. And the minute you start interrogating at the edges, it all falls apart. So I loop back to this question, what is a group? You know, if you look at the center, if you look at the thing that is obviously the, the, what we're calling it, you know, um, let's call it the nucleus, then it's obvious. It's very obvious if you're looking at the nucleus of blackness or the nucleus of whiteness, it's very obvious what black and what white is. And this is what the, the first court decided. Uh, but at the edges, it becomes quickly not so obvious. And that's where you have all the problems. You know, in fact, just this week, there was a woman who's a university professor, I, I think, and she came out and said, oh, actually, uh, I built my career and my profession as a, uh, as a black woman, but actually, I, I've, been, I've been lying. Jessica Krug, I think her name is, said, actually, I've been lying this whole time I've been white. Um, but to be able to do that talks about the ridiculousness uh, of how we think about the, the categories in some way and how non-obvious it is at the edges. Now, I do have an idea of what I think a group is as it relates to group identity, and it's not going to surprise you that I'm going to talk about the cell metaphor again. But before we, you know, before I really think about uh, what a group is, uh, what's important to me is is to look at some of the differences of what constitutes a successful group and an unsuccessful group and some of the differences between the two. Uh, and I just, by unsuccessful, I mean, like, it didn't work out for you guys. Like, it wasn't sustainable. It didn't work. Um, unsuccessful groups have waxed and waned uh, throughout history. Um, and, and usually, they, they do have a nucleus that is recognizable. They do have a cultural center. They have a sense of, if you look at the very middle, that you absolutely know who these people are. You know who the Etruscans are. Uh, but they don't have, it, you know, the, the problems arise when you start to go more toward the edges and then it gets like, you know, not so well defined. So, you know, the, the unsuccessful groups, what, what they have in common, amongst other things, is they have poorly defined cell membranes. They have poorly defined boundaries of knowing who's in and who's out. Like for a group to thrive and to be successful, we have to know who's in and who's out. And the poorly, you know, defined ones, they, they don't make it. They, or maybe they didn't have enough functional organelles, not enough people who, who feel the identification. So uh, th this interplay needs to happen in group identity. You have to feel it, right? You have to feel the identification with the group. And the group has to identify you as one of its members, right? It's an identity complex. Uh, it needs to work in, in both ways. If I feel Chinese in, in my heart, um, and then Chinese people don't recognize being Chinese, I, 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 I have a fundamental problem. In fact, this, this problem exists in real life uh, with Amerasians. Uh, it's particularly tragic in places like Vietnam where you have the children who are like, you know, their parents are, you know, maybe their dad is an American soldier and they grow up in Vietnam and they're not accepted as Vietnamese by you know, their community, and they just have really tough lives. And so many people, you know, ended up coming, you know, to the United States being, there's a whole operation. It's Vietnamese, uh, have Vietnamese, have American kids were brought to the United States because their lives were so hard in Vietnam. They were not seen as one of the people. Speak the language, eat the food, still an outsider. And like that kind of tragic sense, but, but both things need to happen in, in group identity. You have to feel an identification for the group and the group has to recognize you as one of their own. And if either of these things get mismatched, you, you end up with certain types of, of, of problems. Um, so that, that's critical for, for how the group is going to work. Um, so you need that sense of identification. Uh, they need to identify you as a member. And uh, there needs to be elements, let's say organelles, that transmit that identity into the future. Part of that is music, part of that is food, part of that is dance, part of that is, is culture, a part of that is values too. It's not just cultural um, uh, cultural aspects, it's values as well. 
but I would say that history is littered with these unsuccessful groups, right? So you never meet anyone who says, oh, I'm Roman, right? Like the Roman identity is dead. There are no more Etruscans. There are no more Babylonians, Trojans, Assyrians, Britons, right? And you think Britons, uh, like King Arthur and Guinevere and Sir Lancelot, the, the people who were in Britain before the Anglo-Saxons came in, um, those were the Britons and they don't exist anymore. Or like the Cornish, right? The Cornish were... They were just here, like, not too long ago. We still eat Cornish hens. There's still a place in England called Cornwall. And there used to be Cornish people there, but no longer. I mean, the question is, like, wh what happened to the, the Cornish? Like, were they all killed? Did the English kill all the Cornish? Um, mostly no, right? These identities, they, it's not like they got wiped out. They, they didn't get killed. They intermarried. They, you know some more powerful group came and they you know they intermarried and their kids spoke the the new language the hip language no one wanted to speak mommy's language anymore or daddy's language anymore um they spoke the language that made them look cool at school you know i mean obviously it wasn't school during the etruscans but you know what i mean like it, they, they spoke the language that made sense of the time and the culture shifted right the food they started eating different food you don't have to wipe these groups out. The Etruscans didn't need it. They, you know, they didn't, none of these groups. It's not like they got wiped off the face of the planet. They just melted into the new culture that, that, that arose. And that's really the point. You know, these identity groups, they, the ones that we have now, they, they constitute some kind of imagined community. A sense of I belong to you and you belong to me. But they're frail. They're fragile. And they disappear in the blink of an eye. This is the only reason I mentioned the cornerships. They disappear in the blink of an eye. One day you have an identity, and the next day that identity is gone. Not, not because you were killed, just because people made different choices about how they saw themselves, uh, the clothes that they wore. You know, I mean, people in Scotland still wear kilts. I don't know. Maybe they still do in Ireland too, but. You know, at some point, people start wearing pants. Like, yeah, I'm wearing jeans. You got these jeans from America. It's 501. You see this fit? Oh, you know, skinny jeans in Ireland now. So, you know, what's, what's happening? Um, but that's what happens. You know, these identities, they, they disappear in the blink of an eye. Um, and I guess the part that I think uh, is absolutely ludicrous is that you know at this moment where we find ourselves politically that we're willing to sacrifice and destroy our well-constituted sense of national identity that's something that has potential legs uh we're willing to sacrifice that on the altar right now of of all of the racial identity stuff that that is happening and it's ludicrous because they're not sustainable identities anyway. There's no cell wall. They don't have functional organelles. They're dysfunctional identities in terms of how identities last through time. So like 500 years is not a good example because, uh, you know, anybody can make it 500 years. But what about a thousand? You know, Roman identity uh, in some form or another lasted like way more than a thousand years like that's that's I, I don't know all of the structures that they needed to reproduce roman identity but that's a successful identity a thousand years more than a thousand years um that, that that's insane but that's also successful identity jewish identity which probably has to be if not the most successful one of the most successful uh, identities m m more than 3,000 years, right? And, and that, that, I mean, that's that's long. The United States may not last that long period. But for all I know, humanity may not last another 3,000 years. But that certainly shows you what is possible, right? That shows you what's possible in terms of, listen, it's not about the identity. It's about what it means to transmit information and culture and human understanding into the future in a way that doesn't get lost, right? You know, like things get lost with the Etruscans. Things got lost when the Soviets collapsed. Things got lost, I mean, when the Ottomans fell. It's like when a civilization falls, when an identity just collapses, there are things that we just can't transmit into the future with nearly as much fidelity as we can when there's some sense of, like if you think about what the Jews are able to transmit 
you know, into the future, starting back from, I don't know, 3,000 years ago, it's tremendous. Uh, I don't think anybody can make an argument that there's not, that it's not one of the most successful identities and and culture transmission, um, you know, vehicles ever, ever conceived. I, I think it has to be. Um, so, I mean, you know, my question is, are we really willing to sacrifice such a tremendous method of transmitting, you know, human knowledge into the future because we distrust what somebody's physical package looks like, like what their face looks like or the hair or however it is that we're conceptualizing race right now? Are we going to sacrifice, let's say, national identity, like where we have a strong cell wall, right? We have laws that say, this is an American, this is in, this is out. Right? This person is an immigrant, you know, the, the immigration people are not going to like this, but the United States has a clear cell wall around who is an American, and that is critical to building a functional, long-lasting identity. Are we going to sacrifice that for these poorly defined identities that no one understands, whatever whiteness is, Whatever you know, blacknesses uh, or Asianness, for that matter, uh, do all those things get sacrificed? Um, I mean, do, do we sacrifice Americanness on, on the altar of the racial stuff? Because that, to me, seems crazy. It seems insane. And we do, we do have the raw ingredients to make a successful identity. We have clear boundaries. Much like the cell wall, the purpose of a legally defined national identity is that there's a clear sense of who's in and who's out. Now, the pro-immigration folks might be mad at this, but your feelings are not what make a collective last. Boundaries are. The membrane must be semi-permeable, right? It has to let information in and out has to have enough holes to let material go in and out and the anti-immigration folks might be mad at this but your feelings are not what make a collective identity last selective permeability is we have a cultural core there's a nucleus of what is clearly american uh and i don't actually think that we have enough organelles enough things that reproduce American culture, and we could probably buffer those, but having a, a clear cell wall, I mean, that's like, that's crack, right? Like, do you, that, that's, that's like an ace. Um, and so we should think about that. You know, the most successful of, of all group identities, they have those, they have the strong boundaries. They, they have both identification, how you feel. Um, this is the thing that you identify with. And they have that sort of, you know, complex identity where the group sees you as a member and you feel like a member. Um, and, and I don't know, I can't think of, of a group that does this better than, than Jewry. Um, you know, feeling Jewish is, is not necessarily enough. There are lots of people who feel Jewish, but if the community doesn't recognize you as, as Jewish, then you're sort of on the outs or they're going to make you convert anyway. Uh, and so that that's a really good match between identification and complex identity. Um, if you are born to, let's say, um, a Gentile mother and your father is Jewish and you have a bar mitzvah, but you don't convert, uh, there might be some American Jews who will say, oh, yeah, you, you know, you're Jewish. But the state of Israel doesn't care. They're still going to make you convert if you want to if you want to live there. Um, it has to be semi permeable. And this is really interesting, uh, especially when you're looking at Jewry. Jewry is, is amazingly d- diverse. It's incredibly diverse. Uh, I, I think for so many American, they think about uh, the Ashkenazim, you know, Eastern European Jews, and that's their image uh, of Jewry. Uh, but there are Persian Jews and Yemenite Jews and Jews from Morocco and Algeria and Turkey and Iraq and Ethiopia and India uh, and the only reason that's worth mentioning is because it actually talks, it speaks to the, the semi-permeability, that there is information constantly moving in and out of Jewry as a group. Um, and it means that those boundaries are strong, but they're also, um, 
they, they have enough permeability to let information in and out. And, and that's critical, I think, to, to having new ideas and to being able to, to be self-sustaining over time. Um, and there are clearly structures uh, that allow for the reproduction and transmission uh, of identifying, you know, to be able to transmit that into the future. Uh, and so, yes, yeah, some of it's tradition and some of it's food and some of it's holy days. Um, and, and all of those things help to transmit um, the identity into, into future generations, right? It's very, very important. And, and so I think a very, very successful um, identity. Uh, Muslims also have uh, a very strong uh, communal identity. I think for the same reason, they have strong boundaries. I think there is a sense of identification, how you feel about the ummah is the larger Muslim community um, and, and how they feel about you. And it's semi-permeable, right? People can convert and become part of it. It's a little bit harder to like deconvert or to, you know, it's a little bit harder. Um, but but there is a, a, an information that gets, there's a semi-permeable membrane semi-permeable membrane around the Muslim community that allows information to go in and out and people to pass in and out. And there are structures that allow for the reproduction um, and transmission of identity into the future, which I think is, um, is, is a critical thing. Um, and the Hindus ha have some structures that work really well. I think they're really good at reproducing identity. And, uh, you know, Christianity is interesting. I don't think it does a very good job uh, but the Catholics do. The Catholics in particular, um, they, they have nearly all of the structures that are necessary to have strong boundaries, to have these organelles, um, to, to, you know, the, the identification piece. Uh, the Catholics, I think, well, I mean, look, they've been doing it for 1,700 years. So if you need an argument for a successful identity, the Catholics sort of, they, they, they've nailed it. And, you know, with the exception of Rome, some of this might seem like I'm leaning heavily on religion. And it's not it's not that it has to be religious by nature. It's just that, you know, the religions have been they're the ones that have been around long enough to stand the, the test of time. You know, the ancient Egyptians did a really good job, but they were they did a couple thousand years. Uh, the Romans, you know, as a non-religious identity also lasted more than a thousand years. But past that, you uh, you know, the other identities just haven't been around as long. They, they die out. You know, the, the Babylonians, who knows where they went. Um, and, and the nation state, whatever we think of as like French or German or Italian or whatever, like they just haven't been around that long. Um, the nation state is, I don't know, what, 352 years old. I'm thinking of the Treaty of the Peace of Westphalia, 1648, I guess. Um, yeah, the nation state is just not old enough to really say whether or not um, the national identity will work, but I think I think that it will. Um, I, I think that if we look at the, the structures that are necessary uh, to make identities successful, I think that national identities will pass muster, uh, which is the reason that I, I'm using this as a frame of reference to thinking about um, what it means to be an American. Um, I think they'll be able to do it. I just don't use those as examples now because they haven't been around so long. But who cares? Who cares about this anyway? Why have you gone on for, I don't know, an hour talking about identity? Who cares? I'm glad you asked. If we had Americanness as the reference point, and a well-defined, semi-permeable identity group, uh, every American could participate in Americanness equally, and we wouldn't have this civil unrest. I mean, that's just to start. We could harness the intellect and the resourcefulness of all Americans to push us forward. You know, Stephen Jay Gould has a quote that I really like. It says, I'm somehow less interested in the weight and convolutions of Einstein's brain than in the near certainty that people of equal talent have lived and died in the cotton fields and sweatshops. And I've always liked this quote because it, it, it speaks to how much talent is underdeveloped, right? Is underdeveloped. I mean, it's, it's, it's easy to understate, 
Um, but there are loads of millions of Americans that have been systematically underdeveloped and they can't fully participate and even contribute to the project of the United States. And, and we all lose because of that. Like the entire enterprise of, of the United States, of what it is that we're trying to do, we all lose. Uh, and, it, you know, it's easy to write off the, the, you know, the underdevelopment because our eyes can't look past what we see in the present. Uh, most Americans don't understand that the specific housing policies that created the type of urban blight and urban poverty that we see now. And, you know, and, and you know, I guess in the 80s and the 90s, we call it the, the inner city. Right. Um, and, and so. You know, you look out and, and things looked at the way that they are. And you just assume that the underdevelopment and the bad schools and, you know, the city poverty, it, that's just the way that it is. But that's not true. It, it was created. Like, it was created. It's not happenstance. It, it's not the natural course. These were policies that underdeveloped the cities. And as a consequence, there are so many Americans who don't have the tools that are necessary to develop themselves in a way that are necessary so that they can contribute their utmost to the larger society. And that's a problem. And the reason it was able to be created, you know, is really because of this value gap. You know, the reason these policies were possible is because there's a value gap. There's a differential in the value of black lives and standards of livings that still obtains today as it did in the 20th century and in the 19th century. And it's, it, it's, this, it's this unwillingness, dare I say, it's this refusal to treat all Americans as full citizens that has been corrupting the United States since at least Reconstruction, right? Since at least Reconstruction. Uh, if you think about, so like given the 14th Amendment, uh, given the 14th Amendment, Plessy versus Ferguson should have gone the other way. Like, separate but equal shouldn't have happened. Jim Crow laws should never have happened. And, and this is not me looking backward and, and trying to apply some standard today uh, of what happened then. Plessy's lawyers felt the same way, right? And, and, and the dissenting judge, his name was John Marshall Harlan, he felt the same way. So it's not like oh, I'm taking today's morality and I'm pushing it back into the past. There were lawyers at the time. The only reason it became a case, uh, Plessy versus Ferguson, is because some people were like, oh, this is actually not right. They knew it wasn't right. Given the 14th Amendment, it should not have happened. But some people, but some people were, were so taken by the notion of white identity, and let's be fair, right, the privileges that accrued to it as well, that there was no way that they were going to relinquish white identity. There was no way. You know, and if we're going to really move from a place of such tremendous dysfunction, the racial identities have to perish. They have to go. I mean, they must acquiesce to a larger identity, ideally to a national one, just like the first time. Uh, and you know, look, that, that might seem like a pipe dream. Uh, that white people would willingly give up whiteness, uh, such a primary identity. But it's happened before, right? It happened in the forging of, of whiteness. So many people gave up their English identities and their Dutch identities and, and their Hungarian identities to just become white. You never hear anyone and say, oh, I'm an English American. Like, that's not a thing. No one says that. No one says I'm Dutch American. Uh, I mean, yeah, some later groups, so yeah, they still sort of, they have a foot in like, oh, I'm Italian-American or something like that. But that goes over time and it's just nominal. Uh, and if you ask people who come directly from Ireland or how they think about, quote unquote, Irish-Americans, they're like, well, these people aren't Irish. Um, you know, it's nominal, but mostly the, the, the identity is American. And again, no one says, I'm an English-American. It's like not even a thing. It means that they gave up that identity. Um in order to, to be part of the process of, of forging whiteness. It's this larger white identity that subsumed all of those other identities. And so that, that white people would be willing to give that up now, though, is going to be even more difficult. Because now it's the identity of status and prestige. 
and everyone knows it except for uh, I mean I guess a handful of white women who pretend to be black. Um, you know, Danielle Brigoli and Rachel Dolezal, Dolezal and the, this new professor uh, Jessica Krug. Um, but it but it has to be done. You know, most of these identities will perish anyway. Black will perish as an identity anyway. White will perish as an identity anyway. Um, it's the nature of the beast, right? Just just ask the Cornish. Uh, these identities don't last. But if we believe that there's something valuable in culture, right, the ability to transfer ideas and ways of thinking about the world into the future, especially American ideas, right? You think about the, the idea of entrepreneurship and what entrepreneurship means in the United States and what that means in terms of, like, I don't know, like vaccines and, you know, solar, you know, battery cars and Tesla and Apple and that kind of ingenuity and innovation that is just part of, like, the American way of thinking. Like, we're mavericks. We think outside the box. Germans, you know, if you try to... <laughs> If you try to cross the street in Germany and the light is red, people will look at you with like like you have two heads and be like, yo, you can't walk the street. So, you know, it's just, we're in Munich. It's like me and a couple friends. And there's a little small, like little small street. It's about uh, like a Volkswagen. is it's, a, it's as wide as a Volkswagen could get across, right? It's three o'clock in the morning. The light is red. And there are like these two Germans who are like standing. <laughs> They're standing, uh, waiting for the light to turn. And, you know, I'm with my American friends, uh, we come up to the light. We we look down the street. It's 3 o'clock in the morning, and it's quiet. I mean, you could hear a pin drop. There's no car coming. We look at each other. We look at them, and then we just cross. And the Germans freak out. They're like, no, no, you can't. I'm like, what? What? There are no cars coming. And I was like, oh, right, Germans are about the rules. Americans are mavericks, right? We're mavericks. This is what we do. Um, that little digression, though, it, it, it talks about, uh, I, I think, part of the culture of the United States, it, it really is that, that maverick sense. It's that thinking outside the box. It's the innovation and the entrepreneurship and that kind of, you know, ingenuity. And is that worth passing into the future? When I think about people like, like Eric Ries and like the Lean Startup and Jim Collins, Good to Great, and Ray Dalio. I mean, they, they could have been from anywhere in the world, but they're from here. Um, and it's not that I think, you know, America is like, you know, God's favorite nation. It's not what I'm saying, but there's something in the culture that says, I, we might want to ask this question, is it worth transmitting these values and these sensibilities into the future? I, I, I think the answer is yes. Um, I, I think if we're asking, should, should this spirit live on? I think that the answer is yes. Um, now, the way that I see it, U.S. hegemony is waning no matter what. China is going to be poised to take on the position of the new hegemon. That, that may not be very soon, but it's coming. And with that is an entire way of thinking about the world. Look, Africa is already experiencing what Hong Kong already knew. Africa is getting what it means to be, you know, to have China have, have its hooks in you. They're understanding the, the Chinese mentality, whether they want to or not. Um, the, the, their way of thinking and shaping the world. Uh, and, and if the United States can't make the shift to a functioning, functional, functional and functioning, that is to say not dysfunctional, um, if the, the U.S. can't make that shift to a functioning and functional closed system, yet inclusive identity, then America's current identities, all of them, right, they will either diffuse or they will ulcerate. And I, I, I think that we will lose all of the, look, it'll either diffuse, it'll ulcerate, and however we think of what the United States is, whatever we think is fighting for, it just will cease to exist. And that might seem like hyperbole, uh, but the Romans didn't see their end coming. The Etruscans didn't see their end coming. The Scythians didn't see their end coming. The Illyrians didn't, like, I could do this all day. 
no one sees that end. What I'm telling you is there's a way to make culture and identity viable and transmissible into the future. And it's by having a closed system that's permeable and has all these organelles, all these sub-identities that are working together to make the thing. And, and if we can't be inclusive of all of those people who are American, then the United States will perish. Now, if you made it to the end of this hour-long rant, then I, th- I thank you from the bottom of my heart for, uh, for, for just hanging in there with me. And, you know, I, I hope you found some value in it. I mean, heterodox Americana is really dependent on those who find value in it. Uh, and if you are, you know, if you've made it this far, then I would say please take a moment to review us on iTunes. Uh, that allows us um, to be found more easily by other people who are looking for the show. Uh, and, you know, if there's any aspect of any of this that I didn't cover or you would like... Um, you know, you know, if you have some pushback or some ideas or you would like us to, to really examine another idea, then uh, find us on Instagram, Heterodox Americana, and let us know your thinking and your thoughts. Uh, once again, thank you so much, and uh, we'll see you next week.